You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, a man who needs no introduction, but I will introduce him. He's a number one best-selling author, books like Bonhoeffer et al., and he's the host of the Eric Metaxas Show and Socrates in the City, and he's just written a new book called Is Atheism Dead?, which is amazing. Welcome, Eric Metaxas. It's not about me. It's about the book. It's about the book. I love the cover, by the way. It's... Well, it's an allusion to the Time Magazine article from 1966, right? Well, at least, yes, it's um, that's correct. And uh, I am, I, I've literally never been more excited about a book than I am about this book. There's stuff in here that I am astonished at, at this information. So I'm thrilled I got to put it in a book so that people can read it because nobody seems to be writing about some of this stuff. I don't know how it is that I got to discover this stuff or to meet people who apprised me of this information. But I said, this is wild evidence for the existence of God. I mean, just unprecedented. I dare, I would almost say in times kind of evidence. Like, I don't know how it is that these things get revealed now, but they've been revealed and people need to at least know what is out there. So that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. And so the, what led you to write the book, I think, was the 2014 op-ed piece you wrote for the Wall Street Journal that came out on Christmas Day, right? And tell us about that. It was called, the title was Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. So how yeah. did that lead to this book? Well, um, over the years, I, you know, I read a lot of kind of apologetics or science stuff. And I, when I was writing my book on miracles, I thought, you know, the biggest miracle without any question is this the idea of the fine-tuned universe, the idea that the more science, whoops, the more science learns, the more impossible it is to believe there's no God, that we got here randomly. Now, you don't hear about that in the pop culture, but you should, because this is science. This is not, you know, Christian philosophy or theology. This is just science. And so when I put that together in my book, Miracles, um, I kind of boiled it down into an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, and it went so viral that it got 650,000 Facebook shares, and nothing had ever come close in the history of the Wall Street Journal. Like, nothing went over 300,000. This was like more than double. And I thought, why is that? Well, it's because there is such a hunger uh, that people have to know can science be compatible with faith? Does science disprove faith? I've always heard that the two are at odds. And then you hear, read an article in the Wall Street Journal that says, no, uh, science increasingly makes the case for God. What's that all about? So I think it revealed just the hunger that people have. And I actually print that op-ed at the end in the appendix of this book. But I remember thinking, I I probably need to dip back into this at some point. And it was right at the beginning of COVID. uh, I, I thought of two people that I had met and things they had told me. And I, and, and I said, that's reason enough to write a book that deals with all this stuff. And the two people are 
a guy named Dr. James Tour. He's a nanoscientist, organic chemist at Rice University in Houston. Right. And the other guy is a, um, uh, an archaeologist in Albuquerque. And I just, you know, it seems like randomly met them and they told me these wild stories. I mean, I shouldn't put it that way. I mean, they, they, they explained some things to me with tremendous evidence. And I thought, how is it possible that nobody knows this? This is like earth shaking information. Um, the story of uh, Dr. Collins, uh, this was just written up in nature. And I actually wrote about it in Newsweek. Obviously there's a chapter on it in my book, but um, newsweek.com has a very short version that I just wrote. But the fact is that Dr. Stephen Collins discovered biblical Sodom. It is just like a stunning concept that 1700 BC, when the time of the, the biblical patriarchs, like way before, you know, modern history in the mists uh, of, uh, of prehistory, it seems, was this event that the Bible talks about. And we kind of dismiss it the way we dismiss Noah's flood or the Garden of Eden or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, no, uh, we can now say with tremendous confidence that Dr. Collins discovered biblical Sodom and, you know, down to chapter and verse of what he discovered and what the scientists say. And when was that again? What year was that? Uh, well, 1700 BC is when this event happened. What year, what year did he discover it? Uh, about 10 years after that. (laughs) Just kidding. He discovered it about, um, well, I I tell the story in my, uh, in, in the chapter, it was 1996 that he first thought something's wrong here. The people who say where Sodom and Gomorrah probably are, they're way off. And he was, he was looking at the Bible and saying, according to what the Bible says, this is in 1996, Genesis says clearly that this city was on the Kikar Plain the, around the Jordan River north of the Dead Sea. He says, why are people saying it's down by the bottom of the Dead Sea? It made no sense. He says that the Bible is really clear where this is. And he said, at some point, as soon as I can, I need to, to look into this. So it wasn't until uh, I think eight years, seven years later that he was able actually to investigate and excavate. Um, and when he finds the, the place that he thinks is it, he had no idea, but he said, this is the best candidate. He starts to excavate. And when he gets down to the 1700 BC level, because obviously when people like, what do they call it? Stratigraphy, you know, they're going down by level, by level, layer by layer back into the past. And they get down to 1700 BC uh, and they find, they call it a destruction matrix, a five foot thick layer of soot, which is scattered throughout it are bits of, you know, charred human bones and melted bricks and melted pottery. I mean, no one had ever seen anything like this, period. This was unprecedented. Uh, Scientists have poured over every detail of what he discovered. And they say there's only one thing that can account for this kind of destruction. We've never seen it before. The only thing that counts for it is what they call a cosmic uh, airburst event, which means a meteor, probably about 200 feet in diameter, kind of like Tunguska, Siberia. People who know what happened in Siberia in 1908, uh, it it almost never happens, but it has happened. And in 1908, in a remote part 
of Siberia. I think most of Siberia is pretty remote, but a meteor uh, of about 180 feet in diameter, which is tiny compared to the earth. You just think about it. It's like tiny, 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 but that came into our atmosphere at about 35,000 miles an hour. Uh, The friction, whatever, eventually made it explode about five miles above the surface of the earth in this remote area of Siberia. And the explosion from this 180 foot diameter meteor was the equivalent, this is what scientists say, of a thousand Hiroshima bombs. Wow. And you think, wait, what? Like a thousand Hiroshima bombs? It, it instantly flattened 80 million trees. I mean, it, it's one of these things you just can't make it up. It's just insane. And because of that, when the scientists looked at what happened, at this spot, which he believed was biblical Sodom, they said that's precisely what happened. There's no other explanation. Levels of heat that are far beyond the surface of the sun, which is pretty hot. Yeah. Um, really crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. 12 foot thick brick walls, 12 foot thick were just sheared off like, like wet cardboard, nothing. Absolute you know, stuff that we've never seen before. But what I find even more interesting is that when he was looking through this, this ash. And he knows this is 1700 BC. Sure enough, he finds a piece of pottery from 1700 BC and he knows he's a ceramic typologist. Boom. He sees it. He knows what it is. And he flips it over and it has this glassy green glaze. And he says, well, the technology for this didn't exist till like, you know, 750 AD. How is this possible? What is this? So they took it to a lab in Albuquerque. I'm sorry, in New Mexico, another part of New Mexico. And they said the same thing. They said this, the only thing that can account for this is a, uh, a cosmic airburst event. We're talking a level of heat, you know, maybe 4,000 degrees for 25 seconds because it melted the pottery. There's nothing else that can do that. Volcanoes and, and other fires and earthquakes, but nothing can do this. And so long story short, uh, everything checks out, including, you know, every detail checks out. But what I find really interesting also is that right above this 1700 BC layer, you would figure there'd be more civilization on top of that, right? Well, for seven centuries, there is zero evidence of civilization. That simply never happens anywhere. If you have a, a premier piece of real estate with, with uh, water and uh, military advantage, whatever, you know, there's a reason that cities exist there for thousands upon thousands of years. Cities had been there for two to 3000 years before 1700 BC. And for 700 years, there's nothing. And it's because it was so destroyed and so horrifying to people that I think it was like, it seemed haunted. It seemed deeply cursed and that no one would go there. I mean, it's anyway, I write about it more obviously in the book is atheism dead, but that's just one example that you think, you know, if you want proof or evidence that the Bible is true, that is really, it's just nuts. So the details are more fascinating, but that's kind of the overview. Yeah. Well, let's move from Sodom to the Big Bang. <laughs> so tell us how the Big Bang, which was a, a term coined by Fred Hoyle, how the Big Bang theory points to a creator. Because before the Big Bang, we thought the, the universe was eternal. So so tell, talk about the Big Bang for a sec. This is funny, too. I mean, I, I have, the first part of the book is science. The second part of the book is tons of archaeology. That's just one example of Sodom. And the third part of the book is looking at atheism itself and the lives right. of atheists and, and, and all that stuff. 
So the first part of the book, that's science, I deal with three things. One is uh, the fine-tuned universe. Uh, the other is how did life come into existence from non-life four billion years ago? Nobody seems to ever talk about that. And I find that really funny. And you'll find out why in the book. But the third thing is the Big Bang. And I feel like we've kind of moved on from that. But I wanted to revisit that because the implications of the Big Bang were incredibly obvious and staggering, which is why people were resisting the Big Bang. And now we kind of act like, well, we all know what happened. And well, when you look at the story of how people came to figure out that it happened, you see the resistance to the idea of a universe with a starting point was completely uh, unlike anything we can imagine today. Since science has proved it, people think, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I don't agree with that. Well, if you're a scientist, right? Well, to show you how, uh, what, let me, let me say this, uh, Beckett, one of the, the, the principal theses, if not the principal thesis of the book is that we've had a, a paradigm shift uh, where because of Darwin and some other things, the idea came into being that the Bible is at odds with science or that right. faith is at odds with science and logic. And you can see how that happened in 1859 with the publication of The Origin of Species, and then Freud comes into the picture. And before you know it, anybody who is a scientist has bought into this idea that we don't do that stuff. We, we don't go anywhere near that stuff. Before that, and I write about this in a whole chapter in the book, every genius scientist was a profound person of faith. Some of them were just unbelievably profound people of faith, and some of the greatest scientists who ever lived. Maxwell is like, the, that's an amazing story. But um, Einstein, in, already in 1911, was deeply troubled by the implications of some equations. He was working, you know, toward relativity, and some yeah. of his equations in 1911 led him to believe that the universe is expanding. And he thought, that can't be. Everybody knows the universe is eternal. It's not expanding. And by the way, if it's expanding, that's not good because it means it expanded from a certain point, which means it was created. That's religion. We do science. I'm not into that. Now, imagine in 1911, Einstein was still a big nobody. Now we think Einstein, the giant. He was not known yet. I mean, he, he didn't you know, publish relativity until just after this time. So imagine, well, I shouldn't say that, 1905, he published something, but he, he was not the giant that we think of today. Right. So he was still insecure enough to say, oh, I can't. I can't publish something that implies the universe was created. That's embarrassing for me as a scientist. So he creates this, you know, cosmological constant, this fudge factor to kind of do away with that in his equations, because he says, I, I just, I can't have this. I gotta, I gotta kind of like sweep that under the rug. This is Einstein. He, oh, in other words, if you think it's yeah. hard for us to speak the truth, imagine Einstein with all of his genius, he was afraid to speak the truth. And so shortly after, uh, he puts his stuff out, a, a Russian uh, Jew, uh, Friedman, uh, and then uh, a French, uh, a Belgian uh, priest who was a scientist, uh, Lemaitre, and then Edwin Hubble. They Hubble. all say, no, 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 Einstein, you were wrong in the, you were right in the first place. Yes, the universe is expanding. We, we see the evidence. We've looked at your equations. We've looked at other stuff. You're right. So he, of course, was incredibly embarrassed because he had tried to hide this. Now people are saying, no, 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 you were right in the first place. And that's kind of the st how the story moves, that you find people, even when uh, Edwin Hubble 
and uh, Lemaitre and, and Friedman and others say, yes, the universe is expanding and it probably came from a specific point. It was, you know, the universe came into being at a specific point. It was such an unpalatable idea to these, you know, biased scientists, the scientists who, who said, we can't have that, that no matter what the evidence showed, they kept saying, no, 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 we still believe in a steady state universe and we want to prove that the universe always existed. So we're not buying Einstein stuff and whatever. And this goes on and on and on until roughly, well, in, in the mid sixties, uh, using, uh, I can't the Hubble telescope. No, 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 not the Hubble. The Hubble telescope is a regular telescope. This was, a. I have a picture of it in my book. Let me look at the picture. I have a color picture, no extra charge for the color pictures, by the way. Um, <laughs> is this the red shift? There's a color picture. No, no, no. Hold on a second. I'm going to show you. Well, it, at Bell Laboratories, it was a radio antenna, uh, Arne Opensius and Robert Wilson. Basically, it was thought in the 60s, they said, wait a minute, if, if the universe exploded into existence, uh, you know, whatever, some billions of years ago, um, all of the energy and heat from that explosion is still trapped within the universe. Uh, the universe is not infinite. Uh, so it's kind of like if you open up an oven, that heat will dissipate into the house or into the room. Um, and so they said, we wonder if we could measure that heat. We wonder if that, that heat must still be around, if that really happened, if the universe is in fact closed. So they basically said, let's see if we can measure it. All we need is a radio antenna because presumably uh, it has degraded to radio waves. Or I, Actually, I can't remember now. But the point is that they detect it in 1964. They actually detect it, and they know that they have proved that the Big Bang happened. So people who didn't want to believe in the Big Bang, suddenly in 1964, they're like, oops, we're out of, you know, now they've proved it. They've measured the background radiation. And it gets even crazier around 1990. Uh, they measured it with the Kobe satellite and, and even showed with tremendous specificity um, the details of this radiation and, and how it, you know, it, it wasn't particularly, it wasn't perfectly uniform, the explosion that it allowed for, you know, uh, galaxies to form. And I mean, the more, the bottom line is the more science learns, the more it points to a creator God, at least. Yes. And uh, that story, I mean, it's a, it's the first chapter and I find it, it's just funny because you think, because you're always dealing with human beings, some of whom just don't want to know what's right in front of them. <laughs> and eventually they have to deal with it. Einstein was one and uh, Fred Hoyle is another, uh, but they're all, they're all through the book, you know? So, and, yeah. and I kind of think this book is going to challenge some people who just, they don't want to be, believe the implications, but I, I challenge people and say, listen, just look at the evidence, just look at the truth and, you know, make of it what you want, but don't look away. Yeah. And, you you talk about uh, the the fine tuning argument in your book, obviously for uh, for a long time, and it's uh, give us just one example of fine tuning that is just uh, ex- extraordinary. The, the fine tuning evidence is so insane that again, I would say, I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples, but if you read the book as it piles up, your eyes cross because you just say, <laughs> "We didn't know this twenty, thirty years ago." Like the more evidence comes in the more it's like crippling. It's just sick. Everything is designed. I never dreamt that water was this just insane, brilliant confection. Like it seems like water, what's the big deal? Water. 
well, there's a chapter in the book on water. And you think, why aren't they teaching this in school? They need to teach this. This is nuts. Yeah. Water is, is crazy. But the one that I like is that if the planet that we call Jupiter was not there, there's no life on earth. And you think Jupiter, Jupiter, I can't even see Jupiter. If I look up, you know, maybe on a perfect night, if I know where to look, I'll see this little pinprick of light and that's Jupiter. And it's a zillion miles away. Well, guess what? That planet, which is so far away, it is so massive that if it were not there, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but the fact is science tells, science tells us that if it were not there with its incredible mass and gravity, um, an infinity of asteroids and comets and meteors would be hitting earth. But because it's there, its gravity is so strong that it pulls most of these objects away from earth and enables us to flourish, to live. Uh, we don't, we don't have, you know, uh, Tunguska size uh, meteors crashing down and exploding. I mean, who would ever think that our existence would depend on Jupiter, but that's just one example. The, the existence of the moon, if the moon weren't exactly the size that it is and exactly where it is, there's no life on earth. If the earth weren't exactly the size that it is, a uh, little bigger, it doesn't work. A little smaller, it doesn't work. If it weren't exactly the size it is, no life on earth. And you're thinking, is this guy just making this up? Read the book. The facts are there. They should be teaching this in schools because this is what science says. This is not what I say. I mean, I, uh, there's bibliography and footnotes and whatever. You know, I, I just put this stuff together. But I think part of the reason I wrote this book is I think it was time for a reckoning. Like all this information is out there, but nobody's kind of put it in one place where right. you can say, here, read this. It's about time because the evidence has piled up so astonishingly that we really do need to say, stop everything. We've got to recalculate. We are not where we were when uh, in 1966 when Time Magazine comes out and says, you know, is God dead? The evidence seems to point away from God, whatever. We're in the opposite place. The evidence has been piling up for decades and decades. We just really haven't paid attention to it. Yeah. I mean, the fine-tuning argument alone is absolutely, it's just such strong proof and evidence of, of a creator and God. But in, the, in part three of your book, you talk about the four horsemen of atheism, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and uh, Daniel Dennett, and talk about just the logical incoherence of atheism. Like how, just talk about that for a minute. Cause you go, you well, get into that in the book. I mean, I say there have been atheists who are not just smart because you can be really smart and foolish. They were smart and they, they honestly and earnestly wrestled with the idea of atheism. Hitchens and Dawkins, who are the two that I really deal with here. I thought they did. They didn't. Their arguments are sloppy to the point of total embarrassment. I mean, I read this stuff and I thought, how can such smart people miss so much? And I think it's because they were really, they were playing head games. They just wanted to poke holes in, in the arguments of people of faith or in the Bible. That's easy. Uh, but to explain a universe without God, when we have all this evidence, that's not only difficult, I think it's impossible and so they didn't even try. And so they were kind of putting out these polemical screeds um, that are really beneath them. And when I looked at some of this, I said, this is astonishingly bad. I mean, it's very embarrassing. In fact, uh, when you talk about uh, Dawkins, Dawkins wrote something, and I deal with it in one of these chapters. Some of these chapters 
they were the most fun to write because I, it was almost unbelievable when I read some of the stuff they wrote. Dawkins says there's no knowledge outside of science. Like that's one of the dumbest right. statements ever made in the history of language. It's like completely ridiculous. Every society knows that as great as science is, there is knowledge beyond the world of science. But he insists with this, with this scientistic bias toward uh, naturalism, toward uh, materialism, that there's nothing outside the material universe. He just states that with no evidence, uh, as though it's self-evident. Well, it's not self-evident. There's tons of evidence in the other direction, but he states it uh, really just boldly, like he will brook no dissent, and, and that's that. And pretty much Hitchens does the same. And the reason it's silly is that in the next breath, they're saying things like, you know, isn't that a, a, a glorious piece of art? It really moves me. Or, or, you know, they talk about music. And I think, according to what you just said about sciences, what is music? Music is nothing. Music is sound waves. We may read them a certain way, but that's totally subjective garbage. You know that as a materialist. Uh, they're just sound waves. I can say they're beautiful and they're music. But based on your definition that science is the only thing that gives us knowledge, that there's nothing beyond the material world, the, the beautiful effect you get from listening to music or from admiring uh, Shakespeare's poetry or these insights, whatever, all that is beyond the scope of science. So they contradict themselves constantly, but because of their bluster, uh, they think that they can bully people into not noticing. Well, they didn't bully me into not noticing, and I noticed it, and I was horrified, and I said, Somebody needs to call them on the carpet. This is embarrassing. If you want to have an argument and say, you don't like what I believe, that's fine. But when you start saying some of the things that they say, the only appropriate response is like a horse laugh. I, don't, I have no idea how to respond <laughs> to some of what they say, except to, to use their own words against them. But they're very, they're very bad philosophers. They're, they're brilliant. Yeah. Maybe Dawkins is a brilliant scientist, of course, but terrible philosopher. Yeah, and there's obviously no basis for morality if if you follow atheism to its logical that's, conclusion. That's what I write about in the book, and and that's the point is that if you want to be honest, like Sartre and Camus, they were honest. They struggled. How do you have morality and ethics without God? And they really believed there was no God, and they were wrestling with this, trying to figure this out. Well, Dawkins and Hitchens seem to be thrilled there's no God, and they sort of act like, who cares? And what are the implications? It's like. You don't take a long time. You shouldn't take a long time to think if there's no God and we're here randomly, there's no good or evil. I can murder as many people as I want. It's not even evil or bad. It's meaningless. Right. That follows logically. If you can't face that squarely, you're being dishonest. And they are totally dishonest. And, and here's the great irony. And this is, to me, one of the most amazing things I've ever discovered. And I'm thrilled I put it in the book. This is going to blow some people's minds because no one's ever written about this. Um, or almost no one, but nobody knows it. Camus and Sartre, two of the most famous atheists of the 20th century, both came to faith in God. I when know. I was going to ask you about that. This, tell us about Sartre, because tell us the story, because that was really fascinating in your book about Sartre, how he he wrestled with this, and he and Camus. We, you kind of talk about how he died unexpectedly, <laughs> so we don't know what happened at the end of his life. But with Sartre. Tell us about that. Well, with both of them, it seems clear to me they believed in God. Then there are the details, you know, was uh, Sartre received into the Catholic Church? Was uh, uh, Camus, uh, you know, did he really believe in the God of the Bible, whatever? But 
it, it seems clear to me that they did and the details are the details, but there's no question that at the end of their lives, they went through complete transformations from the atheism that had become increasingly unsatisfying for them because they were wrestling honestly. They were able to see the bleakness of the abyss of a world without God. And it troubled them and they tried to work it out and work it out and work it out. And in the end, they said, to be honest, we're not working it out. We can't work it out. And they both chose God. And I think to myself, this is like major headline news that these two arch atheists have this whole journey at the end of their lives, totally independently of each other. One is in 1960 or the 50s, really dies in 60. The other one is 61. The other one uh, is in the 80s. One is a young man, one is an older man. But why don't we know this, that, that the two people that wrestled the most earnestly with atheism that are hailed uh, as, you know, on the banner of atheism, here they are, the pantheon. Yeah. They both come to faith in God in their different ways. How is it the world doesn't know about this? I mean, the reason the world doesn't know about it is because almost nobody wrote about it. I happened to stumble uh, on this information and then found the book where a pastor, a Muma, uh, who had been uh, in Paris uh, in the 50s as a visiting summer um, uh, I guess, Presbyterian priest at, at, uh, at a church in Paris. And it was a big famous church and people would go there for the organ recitals. And Camus, who was starting to struggle, just showed up in the back to listen to the organ music and heard this guy preaching and followed up and had all these conversations with him. And then is killed in a car crash, you know, in around 1960, 61. And no one wrote about it. The, the, this, this, this pastor, this priest, didn't write about this until 40 years later. When he was 90, he wrote about this. And so there's one book with all the details, and you just think it's obvious this is true. All the details are there. Nobody knows this story. Uh, the story of uh, Camus is somewhat similar. I mean, the people who found out that he was no longer an atheist got really angry at him. Like, it was a betrayal. He's senile. You know, kind of what they said about Anthony Flew. Well, no, they, they were not senile. They were thinking things through and they didn't care about speaking the truth. They said, you know, if you don't like it, that's your issue. I'm, I'm just trying to follow the logic. But you can see how people get very upset about this kind of stuff. And I just, you know, you have to tell the truth. And that's why I wrote this book. I said, pe- people have to struggle with this because it makes it effectively impossible to be a real atheist. You can be an agnostic, but atheism, I think, has to be taken off the table. Yeah, at this point, it's uh, you can't reconcile it with the with the facts. So, well, well, let's just leave it at that. Um, the book, guys, is amazing. I read it. It's it's so uh, encouraging, and I I really recommend it because not only will it help you defend your faith if you're a Christian against those pesky atheists, but uh, it will it will just strengthen your faith as well. And I think it'll it'll help non-believers just just see the reality of our world and the universe and how it just it just all points to a creator and all points to god so please pick up a copy of is atheism dead by eric metaxas and we're going to put a link down below for the book and, and i don't know when when does this air roughly this airs in two days okay so then i was going to say please I'll pre-order order the book because it makes a huge difference. I really feel like a burden to get this information out to the world. And if a book doesn't do well, like right out of the gate, 
it becomes really tough. It's like opening weekend for a movie. So I'm telling everybody, please pre-order the book. If you go to my website, ericmtaxis.com, I think the Baker link is 45% off. If you go to ericmtaxis.com, it's insanely cheap. That price will never be better. It'll probably go away when the book comes out. So pre-order it, if at all possible. Tell your friends. I, I just think we're living in a world where almost nobody knows half of what's in this book. And, and, and most Christians don't know this. And I think we need to be emboldened that what we believe is like radically clearly true. Yeah. We need to know that. And it'll change you when you know that you, you kind of, a you approach skeptics a little differently. All right. Well, let's leave it at that. Thank you, Eric, for being on the show. Anytime. Thank you, Becca. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Everyone wants to change the world. Capital Ministries is doing just that, one heart at a time by creating disciples of Jesus Christ among political leaders in the U.S. and foreign nations. For more than 25 years, founder Ralph Drawlinger has written Bible studies specifically for public servants. Study along with us and learn what the Bible says about capitalism, communism, abortion, same-sex marriage, and other contemporary issues. Subscribe and follow us at lifeaudio.com or search Capital Ministries on your favorite podcast platform.